If, if premillennialism is so obvious, why do many Bible-believing Christians believe in something else? They are not facing persecution or ridicule on this issue. They have no obvious external pressures to believe in anything else, and yet they do. They claim to believe the Bible, but they claim that the biblical millennial ends rather than begins at Christ's return. As Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who speaks first sounds right until the second one speaks. You can't answer the matter before we hear both sides, or in this case, all three sides, because with the millennial reign, there are actually three views. There are the first view of premillennialism, which is the view that we talked about and covered uh, in the first two episodes. There is amillennialism, which is the view that I am about to make the case for now. And then there is postmillennialism, which I really <laughs> don't even see a reason for making the case for because it is more absurd than premillennialism. However, we're going to start off with the time of Revelation chapter 20. For the amillennial view, let's start with this question. And I covered this in both the first and second episode of this series. What if Revelation 20 isn't chronologically after chapter 19? John saw the vision of chapter 20 after he saw the vision of chapter 19, but what if the visions did not come in the sequence that they will be fulfilled in? What if Revelation 20 takes us to a different point in time than when chapter 19 ended? What if the vision moves to another area of history without proceeding chronologically? In chapter 12, we can see a clear example of this freedom to move forward or backward in time. Chapter 11 ends with the seventh trumpet. And then chapter 12 takes us back to a woman giving birth to a male child and the woman being protected for 1,260 days. This is usually understood to be the birth of Jesus Christ and the persecution of the church. Yet in the literary flow, this comes right after the seventh trumpet. John's vision has taken him back in time to sketch another part of the story. So the question is, is the same thing happening in Revelation 20? Is it taking us back in time? More specifically, is there evidence in the Bible that this is a better interpretation of what God is revealing? Yes, says the amillennial view. There is evidence in Scripture that the kingdom of God has already begun that Satan has already been bound, and that there will only be one resurrection, that Christ's return will bring the new heavens and the new earth without any temporary kingdom in between. It is a hermeneutical mistake to make the book of Revelation with all its symbolism and all its interpretive difficulties contradict what the rest of Scripture says. We need to use plain scriptures to interpret to interpret the obscure ones. 
rather than the other way around. In this case, the book of Revelation is the obscure and the controversial material, mainly because of its apocalyptic writing style, and the other New Testament verses are clear on this matter. For example, Luke chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 tell us how we are to understand the Old Testament prophecies. John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, and the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. When Isaiah wrote about mountains and valleys, roads and deserts, he was speaking in a figurative language. Old Testament prophecies were given in figurative language to depict, to, to depict, I'm sorry, to depict the events of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the Old Testament prophets were pointing to Him. If we see their major focus as some future time span, we are not seeing these prophecies in the light of Jesus Christ. He changes the way we read all the prophecies. He and He alone is the focus. He is the true temple, he is the true David, he is the true Israel, and his kingdom is the true kingdom. We see this in Acts. Peter said that a prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled in his own day in Acts 2, 16-21. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show signs and wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When the Old Testament prophets wrote about the last days, they were writing about the age of the church, the age we are in right now. And if there is a thousand year age to come, then these are not the last days. There cannot be two sets of last days. When the prophets spoke of wonders in heaven above and strange signs in the sun and moon, such prophecies can be fulfilled in figurative ways, unexpected ways, as unexpected as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people and speaking in tongues. We should not automatically reject highly figurative interpretations of biblical prophecies because that is exactly how the New Testament shows us we can understand the Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies 
can be fulfilled either in the church age through figurative fulfillments or fulfilled in an even better way in the new heavens and the new earth after Christ returns. Everything that the prophets promised we have better in Jesus Christ, either now or in the new heaven and new earth. The Old Testament prophets described a kingdom that would never end, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting age. They were not talking about a limited golden age after which the entire earth would be destroyed and then rebuilt. The New Testament does not give us a commentary on every Old Testament prophecy. It just gives us a sample of fulfillment that shows that the original writings were in figurative language. They were intended to be figurative. That does not prove the amillennial view, but it removes one obstacle. When we want proof, we need to look at the New Testament, and there we will find the evidence that causes many Christians to believe the amillennial view. First, we'll go to the book of Daniel. On the way to the New Testament, we might look briefly at Daniel chapter 2, one of the favorite passages of premillennialists. However, it does not support premillennialism, despite the assumptions that people bring to the text. Daniel 2.44 says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel is describing the kingdom of God, which will eliminate human kingdoms and last forever. There is no hint in this verse that God's kingdom will come in phases of a church age that is almost destroyed by a great tribulation and then a millennial age that is almost destroyed by the release of Satan, and then finally a new Jerusalem. No, it is simply that the kingdom will be set up and defeat all enemies and last forever. There is no need for defeating all enemies twice or establishing the kingdom three different times. The premillennial view is not in this passage, and yet premillennialists often cite it. Premillennialism has a tendency to read preconceived ideas into the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to speak for itself. Eisegesis instead of exegesis. Now let's look at Jesus. Let's see what the New Testament says. The Olivet Prophecy is the most detailed prophecy that Jesus gave, and we looked at this in both the first and the second episode. In Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21 and in Mark 13, it is what is normally referred to as the Olivet Discourse. If the millennium is so important to Christ, we should find some hint of it here, but we do not. Instead, we find Jesus describing his own return immediately followed by a judgment of reward and punishment. Matthew 25 describes not just the righteous who are raised to judgment, it also it is also the wicked who are consciously interacting with the judge and being sent to anguish and outer darkness. There is no evidence here for a thousand year interval between the sheep and the goats. 
Jesus gave another indication of his understanding of prophecy in Matthew 19:28. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this is often used for evidence of the millennial reign. But is this referring to a millennial period? Only if we read that into the verse is it referring to a millennial period. That is exactly what eisegesis is. What it actually says is the renewal of all things. Jesus is not talking about a thousand year span in which sin still exists and which Satan is only temporarily bound. When he says the renewal of all things, he means the renewal of all things. The new heavens and the new earth. He means the complete elimination of sin. He says nothing about a thousand year period in the middle of things. Such a concept, to say the least, was not important to Jesus. Now let's take a look at the Apostle Peter. The same thing happens in the early church in Acts 3 verses 21. Peter said that the Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore all things as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Peter is saying that Christ will restore everything when he returns and that this is the proper interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies. Christ is not leaving sin around to cause an enormous crisis a thousand years later. He is getting everything settled at once. Restored heavens and restored earth all at once. All at the return of Christ. Notice what he wrote in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The lake of fire consumes the whole earth at the return of Christ. He says nothing about a thousand year period. Verses 12 through 14 say, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt away with great heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter was looking forward not to a millennium, but to the new heavens and new earth. If we are going to talk about the good news of the wonderful world tomorrow, then this is what we ought to focus on, not some temporary period in which sin and death still exist. We have better news than that to focus on. We should look forward to the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Peter is saying that all of this will happen on the day of the Lord when Christ returns. Alright, let's briefly look at Paul. Paul presents much, the, much of the same view in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in, 
in blazing fire with his powerful angels. God will punish the first century persecutors when Jesus comes back. This means a resurrection of evildoers, not just Christians that Christ returns. That means one resurrection without any time span in between. He says it again in verses 8 through 10. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. This describes one resurrection, everyone at the same time, on the day when Christ returns. If the book of Revelation is talking about two resurrections, then it contradicts what Paul wrote. Paul says that both the good and the bad are to be resurrected on the same day. You see, Paul is repeating what Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus is talking about a resurrection of good people and evil people at the same time. And if anyone knew the best way to describe the future, it was Jesus. If we read Revelation in such a way as to contradict what Jesus said, then we are misreading what it reveals. Next, let's look at Romans, Paul's most thorough sketch of doctrinal matters. He describes our future glory in Romans 8, 18-23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Why is creation waiting for the children of God to be given their glory? because the creation itself will also be liberated from its bondage, presumably at the same time. When the children of God are revealed in glory, the creation will no longer be waiting. Creation will be renewed, a new heavens and a new earth when Christ returns. Paul gives the same view in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 23 that those who belong to Christ will be resurrected when Christ comes. Verse 24 then tells us, then the end will come. That is when the end will come. When Christ comes to resurrect his people, he will also destroy all of his enemies, restore everything, 
and hand the kingdom over to the Father. There is no need to postulate a thousand-year period between verses 23 and 24. At the least, we could say that if there is a time period involved here, that it's not very important to Paul either. He doesn't even mention it. Such a time period could contradict what he wrote in other places and definitely contradict what Jesus said. Romans 11 is another passage that's sometimes cited by premillennialists, and it says nothing about a kingdom after Christ's return. What it says could fit into such a time span, but there is nothing in Romans 11 itself that would cause us to think of such a time period. Now we must look at the most difficult passage of all in Revelation, the strange and symbol-filled vision of John, which causes all the controversy in the sometimes bizarre beast and heavenly symbols. Is John revealing things other apostles did not, or is he simply restating in several ways the same prophetic framework? Let's start in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. A messenger comes from heaven to bind Satan. Someone who knew the teachings of Jesus would likely think, this has already happened. In Matthew 12, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, and Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, we know that Jesus definitely did his work by the Spirit of God, so we conclude that the kingdom of God has already come upon this age. Jesus adds in verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can rob his house. This parable indicates that Jesus is able to order demons around because he's already entered into Satan's world and bound him up. It's the same Greek word as in Revelation 20. Satan has already been bound. He has already been defeated. Here I can give you more evidence. John 12 31 Jesus said now is the time for judgment on this world now when now the prince of this world will be driven out Satan was being expelled during Jesus's ministry Colossians 2 chapter 15 tells us that Jesus has already disarmed his enemies triumphing over them by the cross in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells us that, or it tells, the, the scripture tells us that Jesus destroyed, and that's a very strong word there, destroyed the devil by his death on the cross. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. In 
1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Lastly, Jude 6 tells us the angels who did not keep their first estate but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Satan has already been bound in chains. His power has already been curtailed. These scriptures are consistent. So when we read in Revelation 20 that John saw Satan being bound, then we can conclude that this is a vision of the past, something that has already happened. We are being taken back in time to see a part of the picture that other visions had not shown us. We see that Satan, despite his lingering influence, is a defeated enemy. He can no longer keep the nations under complete deception. The veil is being lifted and the people of all nations are already hearing the gospel and coming to Christ. Then we are taken behind the scenes to see that the martyrs are already with Christ. Although they were beheaded or killed in other ways, they came to life and lived with Christ. They are now alive in heaven, says the millennial view. And this is the first resurrection, their first coming to life again. The second resurrection will be the resurrection of the body. The first resurrection is when the Spirit goes to be with the Lord in paradise. And then the second resurrection will be the resurrection of the body. The first is simply coming to live with Christ in the meantime. All who participate in this resurrection are called blessed and holy. In Revelation 20, the first death is not like the second. Therefore, it is unrealistic to assume that the first resurrection is like the second. They are different in kind. Just like the enemies of God die twice, so also the saved people are said to live twice. In this vision, the martyrs are already with Christ, living and reigning with Him, and it lasts a very long time, symbolized by the phrase, thousand years. When this long time is over, Satan will be released. And then, guess what happens, guys? There will be a great tribulation, and Satan and his forces will be defeated for all time. There will be a judgment, a lake of fire, and then a new heaven and a new earth. An interesting support of this is seen in the Greek version of verse 8. Satan gathers the nations not just for battle, but for the battle. John has already talked about this battle in Revelation chapter 16, 14. And also in chapter 19, 19, all three verses are describing the same great climactic battle that happens at the return of Christ. If we had nothing but the book of Revelation, we would probably accept the literal view that Satan will be bound for a thousand years there will be, and that there will be more than one resurrection 
there will be at least three phases that are involved in God's kingdom, and there will be at least two climactic battles in more than one set of last days. But Revelation is not all that we have. We have many other scriptures that teach us one resurrection and teach us that the end comes when Christ returns. So in this apocalyptic book, when we come across something that seems to contradict the rest of the New Testament, we do not have to accept the strange just because it comes last. Rather, we consider its context in a book of visions and symbols. And we can see how its symbols can be interpreted in such a way that it does not contradict the rest of the Bible. We cannot base a, comp a complex system of theology on the most obscure book of the Bible. That would just invite trouble and focus attention away from what the New Testament really is. The biblical message is not centered on some temporary kingdom after the return of Christ. Rather, it is centered on what Christ did when he came the first time, what he is doing right now within the church, and as a grand climax, the way it all ends in eternity after his return. and sisters and welcome to another edition of the Remnant Report. I am your host, the Remnant Warrior, and today on the Remnant Report, we are just going to be doing a, a short little podcast here. Um, I am going to be giving the case for the amillennial view of scripture, of actually the amillennial view of prophecy. Um, if you have been following the past few episodes of the Remnant Report, then you know that, first of all, earlier in the year, I did a four-part series called Searching for the Millennium, where we went through all of the different views of the millennial reign of Christ, and um, I... But, you know, I, I didn't have my mind made up when I started the uh, series on the millennium, but I did have, um, you know, I, I was leaning towards the amillennial view of the millennial reign of Christ, and I gave my reasons for that in... Um, the fourth and final uh, episode in that series. So, um, 
if you want more information about what the Bible says regarding the millennial reign of Christ, other than what will be given today in this podcast, then I would suggest you go and listen to the series on the millennial reign. It's called Searching for the Millennium, and there is four parts. And like I said, if you have already heard um, those four parts, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, um, and you just want to know um, why I believe the millennial view of the millennial reign is the correct view and the biblical view, then I would suggest you, you know, go to the fourth and final part of the Searching for the Millennium series. Uh, Part three of Searching for the Millennium I had two very special guests on with me. I had BDK from Omega Frequency and Phil Baker from Reclaiming the Faith. They both came on with me, and uh, both Phil Baker and BDK are very good friends of mine. They are both strong in their walk with Christ. BDK has an amazing ministry with Omega Frequency, and Phil Baker, uh, he is an amazing pastor and author, and also uh, singer and songwriter. Um, you know, his his praise and worship music is some of the best I've ever heard. Uh, he also does very good gospel music as well, but... Um, both of them are both um, pre-millennial um, in their eschatology as far as the millennial reign goes. And, um, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And in um, episode three, they, uh, they give their reasons and their defense of the premillennial view. However, there truly, truly is only one scripture. One. There is only one uh, chapter in the entire Bible that has any mention of the millennial reign of Christ as a that that could be considered and that looks as if it is a future event and that is in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation and we all know how hard to understand the book of Revelation can be for those who do not understand um, its timeline and chronology and for those who um, you know don't know the Bible very well but 
In any case, today I am just going to be giving a short um, case for the amillennial viewpoint of the millennial reign of Christ. Um, you know, I am going to, uh, of course, I'm going to uh, name each of the different views of the millennium. I'm going to let everybody know what the different viewpoints are, but it is the amillennial viewpoint that I am going to make a short case for, and uh, it's only going to be about 25 or 30 minutes, Um, so I would say that today's entire podcast may be 30, 35 minutes max. So guys, uh, sit back, get your Bibles out, and prepare to be edified. are now listening to the place for unfiltered, no-holds-barred truth from the Word of God, The Remnant Report. I am your host, The Remnant Warrior. Here, you will learn what's really going on in this world we live in, as well as what you can do about it. Make no mistake, friends, we are right in the middle of a war for no less than your very souls. The enemy has spies, everywhere and will certainly use every weapon that he has because he knows that his time is short. From the very beginning God declared his end. From on Calvary's tree we find forgiveness of our sin. So he who hath an ear let him hear. Open your eyes so now you can see The king is coming in the clouds with 10,000 of his holy ones to save the righteous, judge the wicked, and slay the prophet and the beast. So now, let's get this program started.